0: We're facing a food pricing problem in 2022. This
1: created havoc around. Destruction caused by floods, and the devastation by droughts across the continent really demonstrate conflicts around the world are threatening food security globally. But the problem is particularly difficult in Africa, where a record number of people are facing hunger.
2: Hey there, guys. In talking about agriculture, we're joined by both Alex Park and Sierra Virchillo, uh, journalists and researchers who have co written a couple of articles together, with ones relating to this talk being two opinion pieces for Al Jazeera, the new US nutrition aid strategy undermines Africa's hungriest, and African agriculture without African farmers. Welcome to the Global Get Down. It's great to have you guys here. Yeah, thank you. I was wondering if you guys could just give uh, our audiences a quick introduction of you guys, like what you do, your interests and everything.
3: Uh, Sure. Um, So my name is Alex Park, and I'm a researcher, sometimes reporter on um, on kind of a lot of subjects, but I'm particularly interested in African agriculture. And uh, I'm also working on a book about the globalization of fast food.
0: Uh, And I'm Sierra Virchillo. I am a... Uh, adjunct professor and a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto in Scarborough. And I uh, look at how global food systems are functioning and playing out in communities, mostly in West Africa and Northern Ghana, where I've been working for the past 10 years. And sometimes uh, I work in agricultural extension on farms uh, and do conduct research with market vendors and chefs and all sorts of people along the food system.
2: That's awesome. And and on a personal note, I think the more I've dove into agricultural systems, the more I've seen how interconnected it all is. I'm just going to start by giving an introduction to agriculture, and I'm going to start by quoting a person that is very familiar to the whole agricultural world. It was the very first paper we read in my class, and it's Schultz, where he says, most of the people in the world are poor. So if we knew the economics of being poor, we would know much of the economics of what really matters most of the world's people earn their living from agriculture. So if we knew the economics of agriculture, we would know much of the economics of being poor. I was wondering if you guys could help me further explain this quote. I think a lot of students, a lot of people studying global issues tend to overlook the impact and scope of agricultural players and how our policies interconnect, consequently leaving us to a feeling of distance between global relations and agriculture, and in specific, a distance between market and people. And what I mean by that is that a lot of times when we learn about agricultural players, when we learn about economic performance, the people and the workers are never really a factor. Um, For example, I'm from Brazil and a lot of times we hear about agricultural sector, we hear how efficient it is and how it's producing and exporting so many goods. But then what's really happening on the ground, what's really happening with the people is that we have a country that has a lot of people, for example, in hunger. So- access is such a crucial aspect of um agriculture but we never hear it so I was wondering if you could just help me give an introduction to agriculture and, and what it means to these global systems
0: so I guess I'll, I'll just say because I do speak to a lot of students about this topic um I'm not a farmer I don't come from a rural area um mm-hmm. and uh I don't have a his- that kind of history, but I still feel very connected to food because we all eat. Uh, and our food comes from somewhere so I like to say that as a a previous student or as a student of international relations political science sociology geography and all of the social sciences including those who are in uh, the physical sciences or also the humanities it's all connected and related to food so I like to say that uh, I like to study agriculture and food because it really is a representation or of, of what's happening across all sectors and all, all the science and social sciences and humanities. So whether you're food, food is a commodity, food is the environment, food is place, food is identity, and so much more. And I think what has been interesting about it for me to understand is these contradictions that we see play out, uh, not just in food, but in the wider systems. Most of the world is employed across the food system. Um, particularly young people, particularly women. So I think it's uh, the recent UN reports state that uh, something like 80% of people who earn their living, their livelihoods is across the food system. Uh, and at the same time, those who are most vulnerable to food insecurity are those who work across the food system who are producing food. So we see this interesting contradiction of hungry farmers or hungry food system workers. And so I've been trying to unravel this uh, contradiction. Uh, it's existed for, for over 70 years, um, and it's playing out in new and alarming ways, which uh, you know Alex and I have been talking about in our writing.
3: Just to echo what Sierra says, um, you know, when we talk about food and agriculture, we're talking about kind of what's on the plate. I mean, that's that's obviously a huge part of it. Um, but there's so much more to it underneath the plate and kind of beyond the plate. It's just it's the farmers themselves and and not just the farmers, but their livelihoods and their and the ecology and farmers are stewards of the local ecology i mean they're kind of the 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 people who stand between kind of the rest of us who live in cities and nature they're the ones who are kind of getting something out of nature that can feed us but they're also the ones who are kind of you know looking after the nature to ensure that the nature will still be there a generation from now two generations from now to sustain us and our children Um, and so when we just think of it as food it justifies a lot of these kinds of other questions that lead us down this path towards, you know, productivism. So it's like, well, you know, we get this, but if we could make this food more efficiently, we could have it more cheaply. So why don't we replace all of these farmers with like one farmer with a lot of the big combine or, or a big tractor? Why not instead of growing like a dozen different crops over a few acres, why don't we have this guy grow one or two crops over a thousand hectares. And, and it's that kind of logic, which kind of, it's, it's brought us to kind of the situation that we're in now.
2: What I get from this is that we have this mentality, we have food, which is such a important uh, sector of all of our lives and, and of our planet, yet we have a focus on, as you mentioned, on output and not the whole structures behind it and all the interplayers that go behind it. So for example, the land, the people, and and the cultures around it. And that's why we're here telling the story of agriculture from a worker's perspective. And that is very much because in IR courses, or at least the ones I have taken, a lot of the times we hear about the output or exactly what Alex mentioned, the other side of it. I would like to Use this as a segue to talk about the Green Revolution. You know, at the moment, we're currently seeing unprecedented levels of public and private partnerships pushing for a promotion of a private sector within agriculture. We have players like the USAID, the Gates Foundation, for the future, all promoting movements of philanthropy and market insertion into these local economies. Um, I think Sarah mentioned Ghana, but we also have Malawi, for example. In other words, we're seeing a surge in capitalist Agriculture expansion. Could you guys give me a little bit of detail about the Green Revolution and, and, you know, kind of the history and what it's happening now?
3: The Green Revolution is something which really began in earnest in the 60s and the 70s at the time of the Cold War. I mean, a lot of it was about, on its face, it was about kind of helping poor, primarily agrarian countries develop. It was particularly active in India and Bangladesh, also in South America, Central America. Um, you know, and that that was kind of, that was the selling point. It's like, well, we're going to help these poor countries develop. Underneath that, though, and it wasn't all that hidden, there, there was this other agenda about bringing basically some kind of counterforce that could challenge communism or the communist threat in those countries. You know, you look at country like China and and the USSR. I mean, those revolutions began with peasants. They were small farmers. And so kind of introducing the forces of capitalism into these other countries so that kind of there could be basically more capitalist control in those countries. And so the, the kind of the small farmers were part of it, but they were also becoming part of a system that would control them. And control their livelihoods. That was kind of the agenda behind the Green Revolution. Skip ahead a few decades to now, and we have what's called kind of the Green Revolution in Africa, or the Second Green Revolution, which is you know it's 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 about going to Africa, which is the country sorry, the, which is the continent that was really left least touched by the prior Green Revolution, and and so it's a it has a lot of the same. Face It has a lot of the same monikers associated with it. It's also about helping small farmers and developing countries. But at the same time, there is the same agenda as before. There isn't the same kind of anti-communist angle. But there is this idea of basically just bringing global capitalism into these parts of the world that have not, well, have been sort of separated from global capitalism until now. Um, and so it's a plan on its face to help small farmers, but it's also a plan to basically undermine and make small farmers irrelevant. It's to kind of replace small farmers over time, um, but to replace them with, with a system that looks more like the Brazilian system or the U S system. And so that's, uh, that's kind of one of these things that we need to, to think about is that even though it says on its face, it's about this it has another agenda behind it, which is about something else.
2: Sierra, if you could give uh, your perspective working with the actual workers and exactly what Alex is saying is this difference of rhetoric and practice. How have you seen a difference in the things that you have read here, for example, in comparison to what's actually happening in the perception from the actual workers in these places?
0: Huge differences between rhetoric and practice. Um, And I appreciate Alex's discussion of how the Green Revolution over time has has changed, has evolved, but not as dramatically as the rhetoric, the discourse, the narratives that we see in policy um, and in global sort of policymaking spaces like to, to make it out. So Green Revolution is, is basically char- characterized by a set of uh, not just techniques on how to intensify production, um, so things like high-yielding seed varieties, NPK uh, fertilizer, and agrochemicals, some mechanization. But it's also a model. It's also a farming system which is about efficiency, which is about commodities, which is about um, getting smallholders to export uh, abroad to the global market, to integrate them into global supply chains. So this differs from, this still exists today. And I'd say that the technologies are actually, they they haven't evolved that much. It's a similar set of technologies. Um, There are some new things going on around uh, genetically modified seed, but it's surprising just how, how little has changed. Um, But the model has become much more uh, private sector, private based, neoliberal, and that's just reflective of the current global economic order. So in the past, what we saw in Asia, Southeast Asia, our governments playing a much stronger role in uh, regulating, promoting, subsidizing uh, and protecting smallholders and um, to some extent, local markets. This has changed in that uh, after structural adjustment period uh, in in Africa's after the 1990s, uh, the the intention was to get them to produce for for global markets, and so that sets up a very different set of relations between farmers and the state, farmers in the global market, um, who can participate, who can compete, and who can't. Mm-hmm. So one rhetoric that I hear a lot in the contemporary uh, version, which when I say contemporary for historians, I, I like to point out, I mean, after the 2007, 2008 world food price crisis. So that's the time period, it hasn't been that long. So it's talked about as if uh, we need to bring the green revolution to Africa. Uh, so that's the rhetoric we hear. Africa r- remains discussed as a place that is uh, monolithic. It's one place, um, it's not diverse it has been not integrated into global systems its land has not been used uh it remains untouched and it needs to be integrated and the green revolution of previous eras of asia across asia and southeast asia um forgot africa which many have argued is actually not entirely true there is a, a reason why um certain technologies didn't were not adopted, did not function in that region at that time. And um, of course, there's lots happening on the very diverse continent. Uh, The land is being used for certain purposes. It's just not necessarily used for the purposes of the Green Revolution. And so that those are that's some of the rhetoric Um, on the part that Alex mentioned on efficiency. So I think what's important here is the idea is to intensify land so what that means is use the use get more out of land and use less land and so they weren't necessarily they being uh, the promoters of the green revolution weren't necessarily against family farmers or small-scale farmers they were against inefficient small-scale farmers Um, so the goal is to to get them to to produce more and what we've seen in terms of progress is that Any any gains in yields that we've seen across the continent of Africa has been largely due to uh, using more land and not necessarily using the land as efficiently and that's simply because the technologies haven't worked. Um, Their promises haven't been met and the questions around whether poverty has been reduced and food insecurity has been uh, reduced. um, Remain there's questions about that. And then the third point I'll mention is a very recent rhetorical trend and that we're seeing in COP 27 currently is around climate smart agriculture as being the solution. Using less destructive practices of farming will lead to uh, adaptation and mitigation of climate change and reduce hunger and solve all our problems but uh, many argue that this technical solution will not change every anything if we continue to exploit and uh, in the name of efficiency and not actually conserve or regenerate and work with the land um, and the environment so that's that's another uh, recent rhetorical trend climate smart agriculture Um, many environmentalists have argued is, is not really that smart for the climate or smart for who to what end. Um, and I think it's another type of greenwashing uh, that's going on and that we need to hold uh, global policymakers, uh, especially in the aid industry, accountable uh, for using this rhetoric without transforming the system
2: this neoliberal agenda sees African agriculture as uh, locally oriented and disarticulated from the global economy as a major problem, right? It connects a little bit to, I think, modernization theory, right? That states that poor countries and regions need to make transition from this, like, uh, backwards traditional societies to modern, advanced industrial societies through, you know, this technological change. And it's very much like this idea of like, oh, let's, let's make them like us almost. Let's integrate them into push for a more capital intensive approach to agriculture involving supply chains, input suppliers, increasingly large producers, um, agro processors, and expanding this international market. And
1: going off of that, in one of your articles, you wrote that international officials believed that the mistake was putting farmers at the center of the nutrition plan in the first place. And what do you believe led them to such a conclusion?
3: Yeah, I I think it is about There's a certain logic to it, you know, and I I don't mean to say that this is kind of like this is just like some evil scheme that the people who are who are proposing a green revolution for Africa are just proposing these things because they just want bad things. There is a logic to it. There's a certain kind of frame of mind, which within which if you kind of accept certain things as a given, um, certain plans kind of just invent themselves basically you say like well this is only this is possible only this is possible and so naturally this is where we go um sarah and i are actually writing another op-ed about about this very problem with the kind of the nutrition nutrition scheme one things that one of the things that we're saying is that if you have a system that is just based around commodity crops if it's just around corn and soy and rice and wheat and that's really all that it is then you you need to figure out some way to add in nutrition one way or another. And so having, you know, funneling all these crops into factories that will then add kind of micronutrients and minerals and stick them in a tube to distribute to, you know, whoever else, that is, that that's a way to get nutrition to people if those are the only crops that you're going to use. And so, you know, the the, the question though is really why, should we accept a system that is based around four commodity crops um, and that doesn't tolerate, doesn't really have any use for all of the other crops that come out of a region that is as biologically diverse as West Africa? If we can't get beyond that kind of four commodity crop thing, then then the options become very limited and they lead to a place where it's like, basically like like the, what you're talking about, where it's just where the factories, the processors, the guys who make nutrition out of minerals and synthesize it, these are the guys who bring nutrition into the diets of the world's people, instead of the farmers. If we're going to discount everything the farmers do, if we're gonna discount basically fruits and vegetables as a root crops and nut crops and, and everything else, just kind of put that aside and say, that's just inefficient, that is hard to transport, that is hard to grow at scale, we don't want it, then certain realities, you know, certain, uh, certain plans become inevitable, I would say.
2: I'm just gonna go back a little bit to what we're talking about the Green Revolution and its problems. Um, a lot of these quotes that I'm using was from some of the research articles that you guys have uh, kindly sent uh, to me earlier. And one of them, it talks about how recent efforts on Alliance for Green Revolution promote and they're just giving like a quick introduction just like promotes fertilizer hybrid seeds pesticides and biotechnology that increase agricultural production again this focused on increasing the output however it has been argued that unless social inequalities and environmental concerns are taken into account these technologies will intensify inequalities increase environmental degradation and exacerbate malnutrition for the rural majority uh, while benefiting the urban population, the larger scale farmers, agro input dealers, and transnational corporations involved in this business. And one of the things that I understood is that we are trying to implement a market system uh, to these to these factors. But the issue with this is that, from what I understand, there's not that much money to be made in feeding uh, the world's poor. How do you guys think that that plays, that idea of We need to make money out of this, but there's not much money to be made in feeding the world's poor. How can we change that? And I've been talking to people and and discussing with professors, for example, is like, well, we're constantly trying to marketize these economies, which means that the focus for policy will always be to make money for someone. How can we change that focus? How can we implement policies? In other words, implement policies that also have into account the people.
0: It's it's a very important question, um, and I do want to encourage uh, students to to recognize what is being done. Um, and it's it's we, we like to be overly critical and think about the problems and um, issues that are very complex. But there's a lot going on, and I believe that it is the this web of changes, whether it's uh, activism on the global stage, activism on the local stage, uh, scientists trying new things, uh, farmers trying and experimenting, um, chefs uh, t- making changes to their recipes and offering something different. All of this leads to true transformation. So uh, yes, as you said, uh, we see this push for intensification, commodification, privatization, um, which is intensifying inequality and, and benefiting some. I, I would argue perhaps just a caveat to what you said, I'm not entirely convinced that this is even benefiting the uh, urban dwellers or people in cities. I, I mean, it, it's we certainly see people leaving rural areas and moving to urban centers uh, at, at an alarming rate. Um, And so trying to feed cities is an important endeavor and the question then becomes, how do we do that? And so Alex and I are writing this op-ed right now are advocating for localizing uh, food systems or or shortening the supply chain. And this can be done uh, in a number of ways. So how do we make a change? We advocate for things like agroecology, which is Uh, a farming system or model in which we uh, work with the land through diverse farming practices that are highly highly localized context specific to that uh, biophysical environment each farm will look different in terms of the practices it gets away from monoculture uh to diverse things being grown being grown on a land which offers different foods um and there's this new uh term or approach being coined in the literature currently uh, by some really important scholars like jan van uh, jan van der plug out uh, of wagnanigan he's he's calling it territorial marketization And it's part of this advocacy of of shortening the supply chain so instead of focusing on getting tomatoes from california processing in spain and exporting the tin tomatoes to africa or to ghana for example which is what we see it's advocating for producing for that particular territory so it's not hyper hyper local it's not subsistence farming which is what uh, advocates of the green revolution like to to say well subsistence farmers can't feed Cities like Legos, uh, which is not entirely uh, accurate, um, some would, but the truth is is that certain places in the world are being fed by peasants, smallholders, small-scale farmers. Much of the world is. And so how, how do we con- continue to support that? It's through localization, uh, shortening supply chains, uh, using more diverse farming practices that will reduce inequality obviously uh, make environments more resilient and adaptive to not just climate change but also uh shocks other shocks like pandemics like wars in ukraine uh and and other things so that and then at a policy level um we can make changes globally so that we ensure and protect competition so we prevent monopolies and uh, of of what we're seeing in sort of global agri input companies and and other traders and financiers. It's just it's just a capitalism too ex- in extreme. And so I think at a global policy level, there's a real responsibility uh, to protect, or regulate, prevent that. There needs to be changes uh, between relations between the state and the citizens, so that. There is regulations to protect and localize farming. And then there needs to be changes at the, at the farm level. So, and this is, not, this is extremely important, not just for everywhere in the world, but particularly those countries in the global south that cannot compete in the global market. You know, you can't expect a, a farmer in northern Ghana to be able to compete with a highly subsidized uh, farmer, even a family farmer in the United States on the global soy market. So getting farmers to produce soy in northern Ghana to compete, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. You're setting them up to fail. Uh, so that's, that's the level of changes. As a student, you, ha- you have the huge opportunity to support the efforts that are happening across the world at home and globally and uh, within other countries around agroecology, food sovereignty, um, that are really making changes to, to these food systems and resisting. And I'm happy to talk about that in Ghana, there's some really great efforts. Uh, so there's the Peasant Farmers Association, Center for Indigenous Knowledge, uh, the Ghana food movement and, and others that are trying to uh, regulate systems so that things like seed cannot be imported, it has to be developed from within the country to to strengthen and protect local uh, land governance so that it's held at the community level and can't be sold out to foreigners and wealthy business elite. There's uh, there's this promotion, um, there's really great innovative marketers and chefs who are trying to promote sort of local foods and culinary traditions to urban dwellers instead of KFC and mcdonald's and things that is all of these efforts i think are going to be what transforms the system or bring about policy changes so as a student you have the opportunity to do all of that instead of just going to work for the gates foundation or the un or the wto right
2: no totally and one personal question are these changes big changes are they possible within capitalism are they possible within uh this does big neoliberal agenda, because a lot of the times um, I see movements be inhibited by by big players and by big uh, transnational companies.
3: I, I think that's a great question. And it's an important question. It's also, it's kind of a tricky question. Um, I think part of capitalism's success and part of how it became as big as it was, as it is, is that it kind of made everyone buy into this idea that if you're participating in the system if you're handling money then you too are a capitalist you are part of the system and so you have some buy-in on this thing and so don't you dare turn your back on it because you know because you're already knee deep in it and so in ghana um not just in ghana though i mean a lot of countries but certainly in ghana you you hear the uh the the development practitioners are the guys who are really on the ground who are kind of promoting this, um, this thing, not Bill Gates, not Samantha Power, but the people who are 10 levels below those people who are kind of, you know, actively making, putting these plants into, into action. You know, they, they really lean in on this phrase that farming is not a lifestyle. It's a business. And, and, and yet the thing is that like small farmers, they are all working in some way or another in a, you know, in a kind of an entrepreneurial fashion. They are business people in a sense. I mean, they are selling crops for money. Um, They're getting money from that and they're buying other things that they can use to kind of put into their, into, into their farm to to grow more. Um, And yet by saying that, well, actually when you're doing it like that and when you're, when you're making money and you're selling crops, but you're really only selling it to your neighbors, to your neighbor's neighbors, to people in your village and the village next village over, that's not really a business. That's a lifestyle. A business is when you turn over all of your land to soy and then you sell that to an oil processor a hundred miles down the road. And so I think we need to kind of, you know, break down these assertions though and say that like, well, okay, these guys over here, like they might be, working with money, but they're not kind of invested in the same way. They're not part of the, the system. They're not part of the capitalist system in the same way. And they're the solution to their struggle. The way to elevate them is not to kind of deepen their involvement in the system It's to recognize that like the system is something that kind of is external to them, but it is also kind of really just stamping down on them and harming them. And so like, let's kind of take that, accept that, that this isn't, like the system is not helping them. You know, let's help them help themselves in some other way that's independent of this kind of global capitalist thing that we've got going on and that the Gates Foundation and USAID are very interested in bringing into rural Ghana. And so, you know, in that sense, like, I don't think it's about kind of modifying capitalism or kind of, or kind of tweaking the system in such a way that, it, it counts for what, you know, philanthropists will sometimes, you know, billionaire philanthropists will call like, uh, you know, market inefficiencies. I mean, that's what they describe as small farmers as, you know, they're market inefficiencies. The market is there. The market is good. The market is amazing. And the market has not yet reached these people. So we need to do what we can to make sure that it reaches them. It's like, no, 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 let's let's not do that. Let's recognize that they're entrepreneurs, that they're that they that they work with money, but they are they're not they're not part of the system, they don't gain anything by being part of the system. And, the, and bringing the system down to them and kind of letting them letting it scoop them up and kind of put it into its, its machine is not the solution to poverty. That is actually way too deep in their poverty. So yeah, it's, about, it's not about adjusting the system, it's about kind of keeping the system at bay.
0: For me, the, the short answer is, is no, to answer your question quite simply um can we work within the current neoliberal capitalist system no because that's what it's not designed to do as Alex was rightfully uh put um this system is leading to or is doing what it's always intended to do and that is for for growth and profit and is leading to all sorts of monopolies and and it was always designed to create inequalities uh, to the scale that it is, is just, is part of its design. So for me, the question is, no, It's if you're always striving for growth, then you're always also striving to be more efficient. Efficient And things like the environment, things like people, families, bodies, our diets, the diversity of our nutrition and the way we function are just also inefficiencies. Mm-hmm. And we need to either ignore those inefficiencies or try to control them. Um, we try to control the environment. Try to control our bodies with vitamins and minerals so that they can function the way we need them to function in order to make money. And that's just not how things work. Uh, so no, I I don't believe. And sorry to say, um, to all those who are working for a triple bottom line, uh, for corporate social responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, Like I admire your optimism and I want to encourage you to keep uh, pushing back and create new business models to, to lead to diverse systems, diverse products, diverse uh, environments uh, that can meet all of the complexity of our lives in different places. And and that's the name of the game should be diversity. In my opinion, should be diversity, not efficiency. And diversity is is inefficient, I think. Now, I'm not a, a scholar of capitalism. Uh, some people would like to say, well, capitalism as a system is fine because uh, not, not this current capitalist system, a different capitalist system. I don't know what that means. All I know is what exists uh, today, and it's not working. So there could be a regulation of some sort, and then some would argue, well, that's not capitalism anymore, and that's a modified version. Well, whatever that is, (laughs) right now uh, we're seeing multiple crises unfold. It is extremely alarming. Scholars have been talking about it for decades, um, and it's, it's getting worse. So that would be my short take on it, I
3: guess. And C.A. says something that's important, I mean, a few things, but one thing that I want to emphasize is that you know the system wants certain things. I mean, and it's important to recognize what the system, not, not only what the system is, but kind of what it's, you know, what, what's in its DNA, what's embedded in its, its kind of instincts. And right now, what the agribusiness system wants is efficiency. The way it has achieved efficiency is by relying on a few commodity crops. So that's, you know, corn, soy, wheat, and rice. And the thing is, like, when you have small farmers, you know, trying to grow the exact same crops as farmers in the U.S. and Brazil are growing, and the U.S. and... And Brazilian farmers, by the way, incredibly efficient. I mean, they are so good at working within the system. But but now we're going to kind of take the, the small farmers in Ghana and we're going to take the big farmers in Brazil. We're going to put them on the same playing field. We're going to put them on this global market thing and say, okay, all you guys, you know, find a way to work it out. There is just no way that the small farmers in Ghana can can function on playing by the rules at that on that playing field once they're within the system what happens then you know you're setting them up for exploitation if a farmer in Ghana turns over their entire cropland to maize to soy and they're selling to someone who's kind of within you know a processor that is making use of those crops you know that processor though they might they might buy their crops one year then they might not they might buy them from brazil the next year because you know buying it from brazil They'll probably be cheaper, they'll probably be higher quality soy anyway. And so then what happens to that small farmer in Ghana? You know, And we're already seeing this. You know, As Sierra said, you're setting them up to fail and they are failing. And they're going into Accra and Kumasi because they're just giving up their land and saying, we can't do this anymore. And that's happening not just in Ghana, but all over Africa. And we have gained efficiency in that way. But what have we lost? I mean we've lost we've lost a lot by losing small farmers. We lose the kind of biodiversity, the biodiversity within our diets. We've lost rural livelihoods. We have gained inequality and potentially instability in, in some regions. We've gained kind of larger slums in African cities in the way that we are already seeing in South American cities. That that's a bad trade that we've made
0: i think it's also important to note that the reason why smallholders can't compete on a playing field there's a lot of reasons but one reason is that they don't want to right they are being forced and constrained and pressured and incentivized so much so um that they're kind of being pressured in into this and so we've done a lot of research with farmers to try to understand why they Adopt the green revolution or resist the green revolution? And what does that look like? And I think what's often talked about by development practitioners or, or by uh, food, the, la- the large food multinationals, the large policymakers, is that they talk about smallholders as if they have a choice, like a choice to adopt a seed, a choice to use fertilizer. Um, and if only we made things uh, cheaper for them or more available to them they will adopt it and if they don't adopt it well they're they just don't know what they're doing they're illiterate they need to be educated and it's extremely patronizing smallholders know exactly what they're doing they know their land and and farming uh, in a particular way uh, they are sort of working within a a highly complex set of constraints. And making money might be sort of tenth down on the list of reasons of why they're doing something. Uh, so I think aid programs in particular are tend to be very patronizing uh, and, and are just spending a lot of money and time forcing a model or a system to a group of people who don't want to function that way. And so Um, smallholders are very inefficient because they they don't want to treat their environments treat their bodies treat their markets treat their cultures change their cultures uh to fit this globalized hyper efficient system and i can't blame them for it (laughs) who wants to just eat rice and maize i mean fortified with vitamins and minerals i mean that's no way to live and and then you know as alex is saying when we lose smallholders, we're losing not just farming systems, we're losing knowledge, we're losing uh, important knowledge of how, how to use land, we're losing diversity in practice, diversity uh, in food, diversity in seed, uh, and, and these are the people who are conserving our land. And then there's the basic uh question of where are they going to go you know this is what they do and they do it very well and they, they can't really do much else right so if they go to cities what are they going to do that i mean and we see this happening this is the creation of slums or the exodus of migrants from the global south to other countries in europe and you see this migrant crisis i mean this was always inevitable and we've been talking about this for decades so i think having smallholders peasants whatever you want to call these types of farmers in rural areas they are the ones feeding a large percentage of of certain parts of the world and instead of forcing them to be a certain way we should be working with them to protect our environments protect our food systems protect our diversity protect our cultures and knowledge and all sorts of things
1: It's really great that you brought up the uh, issue of aid programs and how smallholder farmers don't necessarily want to function that way. It so happens that very recently, Nestle has announced to sponsor the Africa Food Prize, which funds programs and strategies that strengthen food security in Africa. Despite smallholder farmers not supporting of such programs, do you think these partnerships and programs have any effects in directly aiding smallholder farmers per se?
0: so i don't know specifically about the african food uh, prize and actually i think alex you might know more about nestle than me so i can't speak to that directly but the first questions that come to mind are what kinds of foods are they willing to fund or give awards to what kinds of uh, individuals because what we see in a lot of these kinds of uh prizes, awards, schemes, so to speak, uh, is they end up funding urban elite entrepreneurs who know how to sort of write proposals and speak the language that is this hyper efficiency model. And, and really who ends up winning these prizes are are those in capital cities who have never worked the land or or you know claim they're from a village, you know, two generations removed, but actually have <laughs> no uh, a very little experience uh, with local food systems. And so um, those would be the first set of questions I ask. Okay, what kinds of initiatives are there funding? Um, And so particularly what kinds of foods, what kind of farming practices, and then who is winning the awards, uh, who's even applying for the awards, who's being nominated, because it, it doesn't necessarily include smallholders. It doesn't include those who have not been who, who don't speak the language of, of this model of this system. And uh, speak maybe the language of entrepreneurship and corporate social responsibility, uh, and not necessarily of diversity and, um, indigenous knowledge and, and food pathways. So I think that would be my uh, first set of questions. Can I think a corporation like Nestle help smallholders or, or, progress smallholder farming? Absolutely. To some extent they are, perhaps. I I don't know. But so far as they are interested in sort of promoting their own products, their own model, and not necessarily supporting sort of territorial markets or food sovereignty, I mean, it just doesn't make sense that a global corporation would be doing food sovereignty work or shortening supply chains. It doesn't make sense. Why would that happen? And this is where I think the other actors like civil society and the state have that responsibility, like relegate Nestle and these global corporations to the side and do that work or or take their money through taxation and do that work. Like that's who, who I, democratization is where I think should better do that work. But Alex, maybe you know more about Nestle than I do.
3: I guess the important thing to re- recognize about Nestle, they're involved in a lot of different stuff. I mean, food is very, very consolidated now. So Nestle makes bottled water and, you know, frozen pizza and all kinds of stuff. But, you know, the, kind of the thing that we all know them for is chocolate, and chocolate comes from Ghana. So they have to kind of maintain some good relationships with, with Ghana and say, hey, look, we're, we're good with Ghana. We have, Ghana's our buddy, right, buddy? You're good with us, right? So stuff like this where they're kind of talking about you know, whatever they kind of identify as the buzzword on the opposite side of the agenda that they're on. So like agroecology, food sovereignty or whatever. And they kind of associate themselves with it and say, hey, we we do that too. And we are good to to Ghana. We are partners with Ghana. Um, You know, but more broadly, kind of talking about these prizes and kind of the ways that the development and corporate actors I kind of promote farmers and, and kind of award prizes to farmers and different, different actors within the system. That, that goes back basically to the beginning. So our colleague, um, Joiva Rock, who teaches at Cambridge, she wrote a book recently about GMOs in Ghana. And, and she one thing that she said in there was that, um, I mean, she found this, this pamphlet in the, in the archives at UC Berkeley um about kofi the good farmer who is like kofi you know he grows what we tell him to he sells it to the market he works really hard he's very industrious etc 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 you know and he's totally different from this other guy over here who's very lazy who grows whatever he wants to grow who doesn't kind of grow what what you know we are telling him to grow um and he doesn't use you know any kind of technology he's growing he's growing crops the same way that his Father, his grandfather, his great grandfather, grew crops. And you know, this is a good farmer. This is a bad farmer. That was a pamphlet from like the fifties. You know, this was uh, this was from the British colonial administration. They they drew it up and they were distributing it out to to farmers around Ghana when they controlled Ghana. So you know, with these prizes, and and then also, I mean, you could go onto websites for these. Uh, and development contractors and they will often talk about their kind of highlight their you know here's the story of this farmer who really benefited from our project and can't you see like we're doing so much good look at this farmer i know it's not every farmer who's benefiting in this way but if every farmer were like this guy then they all would you see that in usaid reports you see that in you know, the Gates Foundation and kind of when they report on their agricultural activities, they're always highlighting the stories of people who did really well. And and they're the guys who played by the rules and did exactly as they were told. Oftentimes, though, they're, they're people who had certain social advantages, who maybe had a little bit more money than their peers. Maybe they speak English better than some of the other people who might be in their kind of peer group. And they succeeded within the system that you know, USAID, the Gates Foundation have kind of created around them, but their success owes a lot oftentimes to kind of advantages that they already had. But the story is nonetheless, like this guy, you know, this guy did well and he did better than lots of other people. And the only difference is because he worked harder and he listened to us and he has a more business mindset than his peers. And, you know, it's important to recognize that for what
0: it is. Certain countries like Ghana and a relationship with Nestle is uh, very critical. You know, cocoa was, is, I think in 2018, one of the largest exported goods for Ghana. Just after gold as being their largest, and oil as being their largest exported commodity. Uh, and Ghana has been hailed as sort of the poster child for structural adjustment in relation to cocoa. But cocoa in Ghana, and I don't know much about it, um, is heavily, heavily regulated by the state. There's a cocoa, like prices and things. And so it it doesn't necessarily fit well within what we're talking about when we talk about the Green Revolution. It's also um, smallholder led. So I think all of these things add up uh, to something that's a little bit unique and not necessarily a good poster child for for neoliberalism. Um, and, And in the pandemic, when economies rely so much on these exported goods like cocoa, what we've seen in the pandemic is their entire economies be derailed because the the market for these things dramatically uh, dramatically shrank. So it's particularly cocoa, and, and for a lot of West Africa, cotton um, particularly had a huge Hit and flowers and, and other things uh, in, in per- certain parts of East Africa. So I think one of the things we're advocating for is to to diversify and not just have these hyper specialized uh, economies. And the we we would have to see what Nestle is is focusing on, whether it's it's chocolate or, or cocoa related products. And it's not just uh, chocolate that goes into chocolate there's other a lot of other ingredients as well that ghana provides and to go back the importance of the state and regulations and civil society maintaining uh state regulations and things those relations are very important
2: one of my cases in my class talks about boreholes in certain african countries and how you have big donors that not big donors like people donate money to having these boreholes be created and they go they create like 20 boreholes And, you know, that gives them a lot of donations because people see, like, change happening, the big output. But these boreholes never have um, any maintenance or or, or facilities that structurally maintain the boreholes in, in the places. But, you know, they saw that it's a lot less profitable to do that than to just make a lot of boreholes, take pictures and leave for example, right? So this difference in rhetoric and practice, this difference in what we're being told, what we see on the website. I was wondering, Alex, if you could walk me through a little bit more between this difference of rhetoric and practice. One of them that I found interesting was when you talked about how a lot of these people in private, they would, you know, mention different things than what they were saying in, in uh, on, on their, their pages and all.
3: When you mentioned boreholes, I mean, one thing that is funny about boreholes, uh, a, a lot of mining companies in West Africa, will drill wells, you know, and it's it's something that they just do They say, like when they go to a village and they, just, you know, their geologist has said that there's a lot of gold or, you know, some other mineral in like basically in the, the, the land that this village sits on. They'll go to the chief and say, hey, look, we can, uh, you know, we're nice guys. We want certain things. But, you know, as a gesture of goodwill, how about we dig a well for you and they drill a borehole? And sometimes that's all they'll do. They'll do it because it's a core sample of the earth and they can determine if there's actually any minerals are there or not. So, they're, but they're presenting it as like, this is something nice that we're doing because we're good people. and We just want to help you out, help you get clean drinking water. That's a lot of how this stuff works, right? A lot of the kind of the nice kind gestures are actually cover for, something else that is a much bigger plan. It's a much bigger agenda. And so a lot of getting this Green Revolution in Africa thing going around the world has, it's relied on people like Bono and Bill Gates, you know, and Jeffrey Sachs. People are kind of public celebrities and they've done TED Talks and they've, uh, you know, they've gone on TV and they, and, you know, around that 2008 time, Um, that Sierra mentioned during the food price crisis. You know, a lot of these guys were very, very visible talking about agriculture in Africa, which is a really kind of obscure thing to be really interested in all of a sudden. But they were doing it and they were saying like, well, you know, this is because we want, you know, we want to help small farmers. We want to help feed them. We want, you know, they need, you know, they're not, they're going hungry and we need to help them because we have so much and they have so little and on and on and on. Um, you know, one one of the people who was at the forefront of that was a guy named Raj Shah, who la- who ran um, agriculture programs at the Gates Foundation, and then he became the head of USAID under Obama. And right now he leads the Rockefeller Foundation. He was out there kind of talking about small farmers and the need to help small farmers and the need to kind of end hunger around the world. If you just listen to what he was saying it sounded like, okay, this guy, he wants the best for people. This is, this is fine. You know, this is okay. But I saw him in Rwanda in, I think it was 2018 at the African green revolution forum, which is kind of a, you know, it's, it's a, it's like a gathering of lots of development people and also lots of African, um, you know, agriculture ministers, you know, agricultural ministers from basically, you know, from, most of the countries in Africa were were there. And, you know, and Raj Shah was, you know, he gave an, a, an address to the entire crowd. He said that, you know, a, a truly African green revolution was always about kind of producing more food. But it was also about kind of freeing up, you know, the labor capacity of the continent so that they could do something else that was not just growing food. Growing food, having so many people grow food in in Ghana, it's a you know it's about forty percent of everyone is a, gets some income from agriculture. So lots of lots and lots of farmers, you know, freeing them up so they could do something else. And then they quoted that like you know, I don't know what the exact numbers are now, but they said you know at, at this time, you know, ten years ago there were this many farmers in Africa. This kind of this proportion of African, of people in Africa were farmers. And 10 years later, it's about this, you know, and it was something like a, you know, 5% dip. And he said, that is simply too little. And you guys, you know, you ministers of agriculture from across the continent need to do more to speed this up. This is the same guy who was, you know, standing next to Barack Obama, you know, not a few years before that saying like, well, you know, we need to help small farmers, we need to help them grow more crops, we need to help them feed people. If you hadn't been following him that entire time, you might say like, well, what happened? This seems totally different. But the thing is, it was always the same thing. It it was always the plan. And by kind of introducing small farmers into a system that involves, you know, commodity crops and farmers in Brazil, farmers in the U.S. and to, you know, putting them onto the global market And saying okay go you know sink or swim guys you're creating the conditions which make it really just impossible for them to survive unless they become huge themselves they would call that helping small farmers but at the same time it is helping some small farmers you know ultimately some small farmers might benefit but they benefit basically by becoming large farmers And so in that way, that's kind of how, that's where this discrepancy breaks down. This is why kind of helping small farmers is actually about casting them aside. It's about helping a very, very small number of them and kind of creating the conditions so that those successes kind of sort themselves out.
2: In nations like Ghana, have you encountered any support for the Green Revolution or the status quo that we are critiquing? potentially by big cor- corporate players is so why essentially trying to get whether a- people in the global South may actually be in favor or be deluded about the impact of things like USAID.
0: My sense is that major policy in a, a place like Ghana is oriented towards a green revolution is oriented towards attracting um, major food corporations, even for imported food. And so especially over the past 10, 15 years, you saw you see a dramatic, pres- more of a dramatic presence of multinational corporations, uh, whether it's in agriculture, so selling their inputs, uh, fertilize, I'm thinking of large fertilizer uh, companies. So Yara just opened a huge um, warehouse in Tamale near the airport, for example, um, and you see KFC opening up more branches across cities in Ghana, and there's a dramatic rise multinational food corporations. But what it has been uh, throughout time is actually most of these corporations coming in through the way of development. And so that's where it may differ from other countries on the continent. Uh, For example, in Sierra Leone, where I've worked, uh, my work was completely derailed by a land grab situation where a very large, I think it was French, Belgium, South African company built the largest palm oil plantation where they just pushed the community members aside off their land, planted trees, relegating them to uh, valley land and swamps to plant rice. In Ghana, this is, uh, at least in the north where I'm working and where food is, is predominantly produced for the country, Is I mean, most people are producing food for, for the country. They you don't see the takeover of land in such a dramatic way. Uh, And donors have a very important role in shaping uh, national regulations to attract multinationals. So things like, uh, so in Ghana, the land is governed largely by communities. It is protected by local land governance. So no one can actually own the land. Uh, You can only lease the land and you can only lease the land through going uh, to local chieftaincies and local governance processes. And so uh, foreign companies, if they want in, they have to sort of figure out who all of these players are. Um, and one thing that donors have been doing is trying to to make know- knowledgeable or aware of, of who these land governance actors are so that companies can attract them. So things like actually um, GPS, putting GPS coordinates around things and titling lands so that someone could contact them uh, has, has been happening by donors. And it's the same with seed regulations, it's the same with fertilizer regulations and markets. All of this is being pushed by donors. So from that particular place, you cannot understand multinational corporate influence without understanding the roles of donors in their interactions with the state. So you don't see the big signboards of all these corporations in their offices. It's done through development projects, through contract arrangements. They subsidize, they fund uh, local agribusiness development who then sell their goods. So it's a very, um, it's very much a trickle down sort of situation and not direct. Um, and, and that makes the current uh, current system very complex. Uh, and very integral to understand because that differs dramatically from other places and the reason for this i'm not entirely sure but one reason for this i think is just because of state regulations so setting the governance law that you cannot buy and sell land um you cannot import seed that's changed recently but civil society has been very important in holding the government accountable and protecting smallholders protecting local land governance and community um community efforts and that's why it operates like this in ghana as opposed to another place where i've worked in sierra leone so that's what I would say, if you're looking, to, it's actually very difficult to understand who the global corporate players are, because they hide behind donors and aid. Um, and so just, you know, you go to a, a random Ministry of Agriculture meeting, and you'll see the American Soybean Association there, like, why are they interacting with smallholder farming associations? Aren't they competitive competitors? what's going on here who is facilitating this meeting what are their motives yeah so so you do see nestle like headquarters for example in accra i I can't get meetings with them they won't meet with me uh, to understand what their what their efforts and projects are but you have to trace which meetings they're attending which politicians they are interacting with which donors they have ties with who they go out for dinner with <laughs> that kind of thing to really understand it's very challenging
3: the american soybean association is is in ghana and they're in random meetings with with ghanaian officials and yet at the same time like you, you go to usda which is the u.s department of agriculture and you know which has this this subunit within it called the foreign agriculture service which sponsors development projects they don't do it themselves though they have some some contractor kind of implementing the project and when i was in ghana in 2016 the guys who usda had hired to work on the soy project was the american soybean association so so it's tied into to everything in that way um the people but the people who are actually out there kind of like telling going up to the farmer in the in the village and saying, hey look We're here to help you out. That's a guy from the American Soybean Association. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, yet that's, that's, you know, you see that all over.
0: And it's confusing for me, uh, a researcher who understands a little bit, at least, about the complexity of the system. Imagine if you were a small-scale farmer who's never left your region. I mean, you would have no idea. Like, farmers can't even, they don't even know where the fertilizer is coming from they just know that it's this fertilizer they don't they know that it's probably subsidized from the government because if it's not they see dramatic they see the private sector uh, fertilizer for example um they can't even tell you like which seed who who developed the seed where's is, where is it coming from it's all very messy and complex um and hidden and i think that there's an intentionality behind that it's, it's just very uh, so many contradictions so it's very funny to think about how we need to train and educate the farmers but at the same time hide you know all these relations about relations that dictate their farming you know hide and not be transparent not be accountable to how who's funding the system and i mean ghana more than 50 percent of its government budget comes from donors comes from foreign institutions so i think. If from, from my perspective, to understand the role of the global corporate actors, you need to understand their relations with the state and the relations with donors. And uh, I'm tempted to say that if there is, there is no development project in agriculture in northern Ghana, at least, that does not have a global corporate influence. But if you look at the project documents, you won't find a name you have to kind of dig behind the pages and look at uh, the individ- different individuals involved to draw those connections. The consultants, like Alex was saying, the products, the technologies um, and whatnot.
1: So it's very tricky analysis to to interrogate. We've been on the topic of like uh, class the economy, labor, the market, all of it. And I was, uh, I wanted to bring up the topic of gender. How has these changes in working conditions affected the women? Does this intersection of gender and class in the labor market have larger implications for gender equality? And how has this contributed to a bigger gender gap in the labor market?
0: Very good question. Um, I, I say it's a good question because often what we see in global policy, making in agriculture at least uh is, is not talking about the question of class so we see a lot on gender i would also i would even argue that the push for the african green revolution since probably the late 2010s has been uh, to get women into farming or to support their farming more and more. So they've actually been used as a tool for capitalism and for growth. So uh, what we see across the world is agriculture uh, as a sector feminizing, which means more and more women are taking over uh, producing food, uh, particularly at the small scale level, because as uh, people move to cities migrate to cities it's often uh, men who migrate out first whether it's to a city or another rural area to to work as migrants leaving behind women children and elderly in their communities uh, left on left on the farm and so gender roles and responsibilities related to farming are, are very diverse across the world and and i don't make any claims to say women farm and more than men that's not true and i think it's the statistics that we see are, are not accurate uh, not based in any data i think men still predominate as farmers but women are farming uh more and more at least uh not ad hocly that's not the right word but they may not have the formal title but they are working the land so i think it's important to to always ask like whose land is this who's working the land Uh, who can control what's how the land is used and then who benefits from that land and oftentimes they're very different people across all of that and women and men have different roles and responsibilities so I'm glad you asked the question of class though because women are not all the same Uh, so they're and in a place like Ghana especially women have a especially in Ghana, they have very important roles in the market. And so when you go to a market, you will see women predominating. In fact, if you want to sell in any Guinean market, you have to go to the market queens for permission about where to go in the market. And they often have important roles, maybe not necessarily on the farm, but in processing and in selling. So when we talk about the entire food system, you have to talk about, uh, you, you can't not talk about women. Not all women are the same, so there are major differences between women who can do business at a larger scale and women who can't. and so you often see these quotas like we have so many women own businesses, but they're not the smallholders, they're not the peasants, they're not the illiterate women. we're talking about well, they they're business large business women. So class is an extremely important question and there are certain kinds of women who are Uh, even more vulnerable uh, than others so migrant women ethnic minority religious minority women um, those women are often not discussed in these conversations when we just talk about women women and youth as as if it's a catch-all term class is an important question because um, as capitalism constantly strives for efficiency and growth it might promote women's farming or women's business, food businesses, some women, while exploiting other women's labor. Um, So you might have a women-owned business and then she will exploit the laborers who are women who are working for that business. Uh, And women are often generally across sectors, across the world, broadly speaking, willing to work, uh, for less, willing to work longer hours, willing to um, not protest as greatly as men, if, if I had to generalize, and so, so capitalism likes working with women, um, likes exploiting them. And so what we don't see in the broader discourse of gender and agricultural development, gender and food, is a discussion of, of class and the diversity and intersectionality of women.
1: And to tie it all in, I had this one last question, which goes back to the um, issue of the, the programs and the smallholder farmers. Um, as it has been laid out already that these programs have sometimes merely, barely no effect or sometimes even have a counterproductive effect, what do you think can be done to actually help these smallholder farmers regain their livelihood?
0: Mm. What can be done? when we talk about food systems there's a difference between urgent immediate needs and longer term systemic changes and so when i say things like we need food sovereignty we need agroecology so we need more sustainable farming practices we mean we need more diverse fields we need more mm-hmm. diverse foods in the market and we need to incorporate indigenous knowledge indigenous ways of working with nature and and just human nature interactions and relations, indigenous seed, uh, and and just diversity across the board that way, it's not to say that we shouldn't meet people's Mm -hmm. immediate needs. So don't close down global trade immediately when so many countries are still dependent on food imports. I mean, 80, 95% of their wheat, for example, comes from abroad. don't close that down, that's not going to solve anything. What I mean to say is that we can start to shift, provide extension, just provide more options to farmers instead of, and and it is remarkable just how little is provided to farmers. Uh, For for the billions of dollars that is spent on the green revolution each year, I think the quote is like a billion dollars each year for the past 10 years. and we have seen no evidence uh, or very little evidence in improvements of food insecurity across 10 African countries that are targeted for the greener evolution. Um, the, all of those interventions are very much focused on providing under five different technologies, chemical fertilizers, other agrochemicals, mechanization like heavy um, tilling, and high-yielding varieties of seed that's it and and the model for this is to provide these sort of outgrower nuclear farmer schemes and when they say value chain development it's just how to make businesses more efficient across the supply chain that's it that's all it is how the lack of creativity the lack of options to people is astounding and so i think what can be done is we can begin to provide the like hundreds of other uh, farming uh, technologies and systems at, underway. We can also support um, production systems that foster local foods and culinary traditions as well. So not just maize or rice, they're there's sorghum and millets and yam and all sorts of other other grains and and that's not even talking about uh produce and spices and and all sorts of oils and and all sorts of other things so that's Mm on on that level there's also food imports that could be um regulated to some extent uh so taxing corporations so that their costs reflect accurately or or taxing corporations so their costs reflect accurately what what it should be in the market and not necessarily subsidized and i think there's also this notion of like there really is no costing for the environmental and social exploitation that happens. And I think if products did reflect how much they extract from the soil and from um, exploited labor, like women's labor, like child labor, um, the costs would be very different. So there should be a a costing a regulating uh, and a promoting of diverse practices, models and systems. I think if we regulated uh, the monopolies, the limited technologies being pushed on people, it would provide opportunity for diversity. Uh, And it's the state that is responsible for this, and civil society who is responsible for regulating and holding the state accountable in democracies, um, and as well as uh, UN system, which is sort of multilateralism. So that's that's what I think can be done. And as citizens of the world, And citizens of particular nations that have huge influence. So Canada, for example, I know you're students of UBC. um, Canada, while we don't throw around a lot of money, we do throw around a lot of influence. Uh, Canada is held as a moral actor on the global stage. And when Canada talks, other countries listen. And so I think as Canadian citizens, we have uh or can people studying in canada work paying taxes in canada we have a responsibility to hold our own government responsible and canada like the united states is one of the largest proponents of the green revolution in fact i've been part of agroecological donor working groups which is you know the bilateral multilateral donors promoting agroecology and they have said to me that canada is not just not part of these conversations but actively resisting these uh endeavors to promote and fund agriculture and so i think we need to hold our own uh donor our own governments our own tax paying dollars where are you spending this and why are you spending that um and and promote uh, efforts from within other countries civil society that they want for their own citizens their own land their own food systems as well That's what I think should be done anyway.